man by the name of Eddie Johnson. He played 17 years in the NBA. He was known as the man who put the J in jump shot. He was a smooth scorer. I remember watching a number of his games over the years. He was a very prolific scorer at times. Um, He retired in 1999, and he became a TV analyst, built a reputation as an all-around good guy who loves to work with kids. But in 2006, he experienced what he called the worst day of his life. Another former NBA player, also named Eddie Johnson, committed an egregious crime. Reporters got wind of the story, and they assumed it was the Eddie Johnson who put the J in jump shot. His phone began ringing off the hook. Neighbors and friends were quick to tell him how disappointed they were in him. They could not believe that he would do the things that were being reported. Here's one of the things that he said. He said, the thing that disappointed me the most is some people were overzealous enough to think it was me and attack me with a ferocity I can't comprehend. He began reaching out to as many people as he could to say, that's not me. And in the many days after that, he went on a campaign to get the word out about who he really is and who he isn't. He went on to say this. He said, I do not fault the other Eddie Johnson for having that name. I think it's a great name. He just doesn't happen to be a great guy. I think we can all agree that the term Christian is a great term. It's a great term. The problem, however, is that not everyone who identifies as such does a fine job representing the term. This is the issue, right? We're working through the question, are you a Christian? And we established last week that this word Christian only appears three times in our Bible, each time in the New Testament, obviously, and that each time we find the word in our New Testament, it refers to a spiritually mature believer. But that the bar has been lowered to where anyone can be a Christian today, and that's based on whatever that means to them. And that usually means that it's really not connected to what the Word of God says a Christian is or should be. So from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, we saw that Christians are realistic in their expectations. They are not surprised by the rejection and the scorn that they receive from the world. They expect it. And the reason they expect it is because they understand that they are not of this world, and because they're not of this world, this world won't love them. And because they are realistic in their expectations, this allows Christians, two Christians now, to do something that is just short of remarkable. And we're going to encounter that in verse 13, or begin to encounter it in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll look at verse 12 first to make sure we have our context. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. 
On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Now again, being mindful of the historical context here, we encounter some remarkable phrases in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, but rejoice. Verse 13 again, glad also with exceeding joy. Verse 14, happy are ye. So here's the second critical observation about Christians, true Christians. Christians are optimistic in their afflictions. They're optimistic. That is, they expect a favorable outcome. They're optimistic. This is something that separates true Christians from those who are not. If we were to be honest this morning, at a minimum, this is very challenging, isn't it? How can you expect me, how can I be optimistic amidst a dreadful situation, a horrible season, a painful time, a difficult season? You want me to be optimistic. For Christians, they're optimistic it's because of what we see in these verses. Verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Now again, of all the general epistles, we've been saying all along that 1 Peter is the most Pauline of them all. And you see another example of that right here. Because what we just read in verse 13 sounds very familiar to what we encounter in Philippians 3, verse 10, doesn't it? Where the Apostle Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So Peter said, partakers of Christ's sufferings. Paul said, the fellowship of his sufferings. How, here's why Christians are optimistic in their afflictions. Listen very carefully. This is good. This is good for me. This is good for us. Christians view affliction as an invitation to intimacy. They view afflictions as an invitation to intimacy. It's an opportunity to get closer to the Lord. Partaker, fellowship, those are words that convey intimacy with Christ. Those are words that convey connection, fellowship with Christ, partnering with Christ, getting close to Christ. See, suffering brings us into the company of Jesus. It allows us to identify with what he went through. And in the, in the process of that, that brings us closer to him. And that's how Christians view afflictions. Listen, and this is something that I think we, all of us, giving, given the age and stage of life fellowship, uh, we have tasted affliction, haven't we? Right? I mean, you, you've lived long enough now. And I think you would agree. There is an intimacy with Christ that we experience in those seasons that we never experience anywhere else, right? There's an intimacy that you experience with the Lord that you don't experience when everything in life is going well. When you're not suffering, when you're not hurting. There's an intimacy that Christ invites you to that you're like, okay, this is intimacy at a next level. 
It really is. Consider Psalm 88 in verse 9. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon thee. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. See, when we are afflicted, we pray differently, don't we? We pray differently. Uh, we don't go a day without praying, do we? <laughs> Uh, we, we don't need a reminder to pray without ceasing, do we? Uh, we don't need to be nudged to continue in prayer, do we? Uh, we? We agree with what the Bible says that men ought always to pray. Oh, absolutely, yes. That's what seasons of afflictions do for us. He says, I have stretched out my hands unto This conveys desperation. Right? There, there, there are things that it's interesting. There are things that I have done that I... Uh, really don't ever really do unless I'm in a valley where I'm desperate for the Lord, like things like prostrating myself before him, where I literally just spread my hands out and I get flat on my face and get as low as I can to the ground because I'm so desperate for the Lord to hear me. Anybody been there? Okay. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Can you really say amen to that? Can I say amen to that? Why is it good? Why is it good to have been afflicted? That I might learn thy statutes. See, for the Christian, affliction, listen, it drives them to the Word, not away from it. It drives them to the Word, not away from it. God's Word sounds different when you're in the valley, doesn't it? It does. All of a sudden, every word matters, doesn't it? Every word. And oh my goodness, every promise is like a medicine to your soul, isn't it? Listen, there have been times where I have met God in the valley. I can take you to verses where I came face to face with God. And I'm telling you, it was like it was like someone breathing air into my lungs so I could live. Because I heard God's voice. God spoke to me. God very clearly spoke to me from his word. God gave me truth. God gave me reassurance. God gave me promises. There's a promise that God gave me in 2011 that is still rocking my world to this day. And I can tell you exactly where I was sitting. I can tell you the verses I was reading. And there are things that God has done and is still doing to this day that he promised me from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that I will never forget. And it was, I'll never forget it because we, we, Lori and I were praying and trusting God. And when I read that, I got up and I took my Bible and I, and I, and I walked to her and she was in the kitchen. She's always in the kitchen, but she was in the kitchen. And I said, hey, I've heard from the Lord. I've heard from the Lord. Look, this is what God said to me. And because God said this to me, God said that to us. And the tears began to roll and the praise began to go up and the prayer began to go up. 
And the things that begin to happen after that encounter with God in the valley, in His Word, I'm speechless. Psalm 119, verse 92. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. See, to the Christian, the Word of God is delightful when they're being afflicted. This is how Christians become optimistic in their afflictions. This is a, listen, if you haven't learned, I, I pray that you do, but this, this is the game changer right here. This changes everything. This is the game changer. Another reason Christians are optimistic in their affliction is because it heightens their desire for the Lord's return. It does. He said here in 1 Peter that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. For the believer in the church age, the glory of the Lord will be revealed at the rapture of the church. Absolutely. Colossians 3 verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Christians know that there is an exceeding joy that awaits them at the rapture. When they finally see him, and then we will be like him in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed, aren't we? There's an exceeding joy. Christ himself modeled this for us. He suffered greatly, but he was keenly aware of the joy that was before him. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that there was something very sweet on the other side of the cross that he had to endure. And what was that? That thing that was so sweet was sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He knew that. On the other side of that was that restored fellowship that had been broken because of Him taking on the sin of humanity. On the other side of this pain, this suffering, this brutality, is fellowship again with the Father. That's the joy that was set before Him. See, when you know who's coming... And you know what's coming. That helps you to endure what's happening, doesn't it? When you know who's coming and you know what's coming, you can now deal with what's happening. Because I know what's on the other side of this. Each day I, I get a little closer. Right? See, listen, let me tell you. Let me tell you. Listen, I'm afraid that some, I'm afraid that some, are cheating themselves spiritually. Do you know how you cheat yourself spiritually? One of the ways that you cheat yourself spiritually 
is by taking devotional shortcuts. You take devotional shortcuts or you take devotional vacations. See, some have not actually come to the place yet where they realize and really believe in their heart that the most important aspect of their day is time spent with the Lord in this book. And we can talk about how busy we are. We can talk about how tired we are. We can talk about, and you know what I'll do? I'll just take you back to Mark chapter 1. And you get to verse 35 and you read something about Jesus. You want to talk about being busy? Go back and read everything that was happening leading up to that point. It was all happening in one day. It was insane. His ministry was, I mean, it had exploded. I mean, people just, I mean, he was just going from this to that to that to this. and that. I mean, and in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we read something. It says, and rising up, this is Jesus, a great while before day. He departed to a solitary place, and what did he do there? He prayed. We're not told the exact time, but we do know this. It was a great while before daybreak. So I'm guessing maybe three, four in the morning. Now, if Jesus, (laughs) the Son of God, did that, and was, as, and was busier than any of us will ever be. What does that say to me? What does that say to you? See, here's what happens. This is how you cheat yourself. The more time you spend with him in this book, guess what happens? The greater your longing becomes to see him. The reason that Christians are indifferent about the rapture The reason that there is not a longing, the reason that there's not an anticipation is because they don't know him. They don't spend time with him. They're not close enough. They think the Christian life is just all about, well, how much Bible can you learn? and How much stuff can you do? And how many concerts can you go to? How many books can you read? And and how many conferences can you attend? We can do all those things and not love him. We can do all those things and not long for him. But when you're you're with him every day and you're hearing his voice, there's a longing, what? To see his face. So when affliction shows up, and it always does, doesn't it? It's like, oh, Lord. (laughs) Especially what they're going to do. Listen, it just means we're getting a little closer. See, Christians are also optimistic in their affliction because of the comfort they experience from God. This word resteth here in 1 Peter 4, it means to refresh. This is why it was translated as refreshed three times in the New Testament. We can be happy when being reproached for the name of Christ because the spirit of glory and of God is resting upon us. See, here's the thing, right? You're not going to really come after God. You're not going to walk with him as a true Christian and eventually 
not find yourself in the valley of affliction. It's taking you there. Right? It's been months ago. Todd walked us through Psalm 23. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why is that? Because he's with us. So here's the thing. The most important thing that you and I need in the valley of affliction is him. If I have him, I'm good. I don't have to have MasterCard. I don't have to have Visa. Listen, I love my pastor. I thank God for Sam Miles. But I don't have to have Sam Miles. I love my wife. She's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But I don't have to have her either. I just have to have him. And when I know he's with me, I'm comforted. Because he's with me. I'll never forget my daughter when she was just a little girl. We were back on Long Island, and it, it still warms my heart. Um, she would have been maybe four, something like that. It was, but the school that she went to, they had like this, uh, it was a Halloween thing or something like that, and and I, I wasn't there. I only heard about this. But I guess it was a little spooky. Very spooky. And she was afraid. And Lori, when she got home, she's telling me about it. And Bree says, I want my daddy. Why? Because if dad's there, it doesn't matter how spooky it is. My daddy's here. Right? And that's how life is. That's how, the, that's how affliction is. Like it's, yeah, it's rough and it's, it's awful and it's tough and it's hard and it's painful, but Abba, Father, Daddy's here. We're good. It's good. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all, say it with me, comfort. Comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. God is the God of all grace, and He is the God of all comfort. And listen, true Christians not only know that, they believe it. They believe it. And the outcome of being Reproached for the name of Christ and being refreshed by God is that the Lord is glorified. Listen, that is the ultimate goal of every trial. Did you know that? The ultimate goal for every trial is not to just have it be done with. It's not just to get through it. When is this going to be over? Oh my goodness, please just wrap this up. I hate this. This is awful. I'm so uncomfortable. No, 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 no. The goal of every trial is that the Lord is glorified. We can do that when the spirit of glory and the spirit of God is resting on us. And we know that. Amen? Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, 
or as a busybody in other men's matters. Christians don't suffer for those things because they don't live that way. Verse 16, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, there's the term, there's the third and final mention in the New Testament, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So here we go. Christians are unapologetic in their persecutions. Unapologetic. You must remember, the persecutions that were being unleashed against Christians at this time were both inhumane, but they were also very public. Christians were being brutalized and humiliated publicly. That would tempt anyone to be ashamed. Right? That would. I mean, if, if, if you wanted to just really humiliate someone and you brought them in front of a group of people and you just beat them to a bloody pulp with them not being able to defend themselves, do anything, that would be humiliating for that person. This was what was happening there. We are tempted to be ashamed when we are the Christian at work and we're ridiculed and we're talked about and we're intentionally left out. I mean, you know what's happening. You're despised, you're lied on, you're overlooked, you're denied a promotion. And you know why. It's because of your testimony. They know that you are a Christian. And that can provoke you to be ashamed. Or your family members are being hateful toward you. Ever since you got saved and you've been growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ, your family now, like you know they talk about you. You know they despise you. You, you know, I mean, it's like you, they hate you. So it's family gatherings and it's just awkward and you just, man, things have changed. We should remember that Peter was not removed from what he was teaching Christians at this time. He wasn't. Look at Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 40. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles, Peter was a part of that group, and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Peter had been beaten for teaching in the name of Jesus. The very things that he was uh, preaching about here in 1 Peter, I mean, he, he had experienced And this was no light whipping. They were beaten. I mean, it would have been an unforgettable beating, I promise you. And they were forbidden to continue preaching in the name of Jesus, but they were not ashamed of the gospel. And not only did they not apologize for preaching it, they kept preaching it. 
Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Listen, Christians do not abstain from preaching the gospel out of fear of what people might think about them. They don't. They do not. We're asking the question, are you a Christian? There are a lot of believers, yeah, they're saved. But the primary reason they do not preach the gospel is because they are afraid of what people might think about them once they do. That's one of the clear differences between a believer and a Christian. A Christian says, no, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 16. No, the option to not preach the gospel is not an option. And so I don't care how the person responds to me after I preach this gospel. I don't care about that. What I care about more than anything is I want to glorify my Lord who has made me a steward of this gospel. I have to preach it. Christians consider it an honor to glorify God by suffering as a Christian. It's an honor. And listen, this flies in the face of Laodicean Christianity in this country. Where somewhere along the way, we have downloaded this erroneous message that says this life that we've been called to entitles us to be comfortable, for everything to be convenient, to not experience hardship, loss, pain, affliction, persecution. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? You're, you're owed that life. You know what some of us really need to do? And I mean this. One of the reasons that some of us need to do this is you need to go on a foreign missions trip to a third world country and see how Christians really live and see what they really face and what they really deal with. Brothers and sisters in India who are beaten and chased away from meeting in different places. Brothers and sisters in India who have had to do unthinkable things. The Christianity that's being sold in this country, uh, it, 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 it doesn't check out. My pastor, many years ago, Dr. Jeff Adams, said something that has stayed with me. I've quoted it so many times, I feel like I said it. A lot of what Jeff said, I, 
I learned more from Dr. Jeff Adams in Shepherd School. I learned as much in Shepherd School as I did from the pulpit, but I never forget him saying that a lot of people would give anything to be poor in America. He was right. Just to be poor in this country, you're doing better than so many people in this world. Okay, my time is fleeting. Verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. This is the only time you see the phrase faithful creator in your Bible. You find the word creator, but this is the only time you see the phrase faithful creator. But verse 19 is the key to interpreting verses 17 and 18. Notice verse 19 begins with wherefore. So the judgment that must begin at the house of God refers to the judgment of the godly by the ungodly. So the Christians who were suffering at this time were being judged by the world, by the ungodly. But the suffering that that judgment brought on the godly pales in comparison to what's coming to those who obey not the gospel of God. The end for those who persecuted the church in this dispensation and for the nations who will brutalize the nation of Israel in the tribulation, the end for them will be the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. So compared to the wrath that was being poured out on the Christians at this time, compared to the wrath that will be poured out on Israel in the tribulation, Compared to, to, to that, compared to, to what's coming to, to, the, to the lost in Revelation 20, uh, this, is, this was a warm-up. This was a warm-up. It'll be a warm... Now, again, except, uh, except the, the Lord move, uh, Israel will be annihilated. We understand that. I'm not saying that's going to be a cakewalk. The Bible tells us very clearly that two-thirds of the nation of Israel will be slaughtered in the tribulation. It's awful. Only a third will make it out. Except for the, for the elect's sake, except those days be shortened, they will be wiped out. That's rough. But that won't be rougher than what's coming in Revelation 20 is the point here. Now, in verse 18, the word saved is simply referring to being delivered. So if the righteous be delivered from judgment with difficulty, the ungodly and the sinner do not stand a chance against God's judgment. No shot. They don't stand a chance. Verse 19, wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him and well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Again, Christians don't suffer as murderers, thieves, evildoers, or busybodies. They suffer according to the will of God. So here we go. Christians are holistic 
in their devotion. That is, the whole of who they are is devoted to God, the faithful creator. They're his. And the thrust of that devotion is continuing to serve him. Notice it says in verse 19, in well-doing. Now hang with me, because here we go. This is, this is where we're driving this. I'm almost done. Suffering tempts us to stop doing well, doesn't it? Suffering tempts us to stop doing well. Remember Jeremiah, back in Jeremiah chapter 20, where he says, God, you've deceived me. He was suffering. He was being persecuted. He was afflicted. And he said, you know what? I'm done. I quit. And then you realize, oh, I can't actually do that. Can I be honest? Can I, can I, can I let you in? Can I, I remember having a conversation with the Lord back in 2010. It was the hardest season of ministry and life. It was deeply painful. It was so discouraging. It was so hurtful. It was, it was a low, low hour for me and my family. I remember having conversations with God that went like this. You know what, Lord, I, listen, I, I, I'll be a good church member. I'll tithe. I'll serve a little bit. But I, 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 don't, I don't need to do this whole ministry pastor thing. Is that, is that a deal? Like, I, I just, if, 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 it, if it's going to bring this much pain ever again, I, no thanks. I was like, hey, I can do that. Man, I'll sit in the back. You know, maybe I'll, I'll you know, and not, nothing, nothing against this at all. Listen, I'll, I'll be on the hospital. I'll serve on connections. I'll be in the hospitality team. I'll pass out bulletins. But I don't need to preach. I, I don't need to be in any meetings. I, I don't need to be a part of any, any church leadership discussions. I'll just do that. Is that, is that okay, God? No, son. No. That's not okay. Keep going. Keep going. I'm not done with you. You sure about that? <laughs> it feels like it. It feels like the end, man. Second Thessalonians 3.13, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Some in the church at Thessalonica had become weary in well-doing. Some in this church were busybodies. Some were lazy and not working. Some had become irresponsible. But the Christians that were there, they had not become weary in well-doing. And Paul was encouraging them to keep going. Listen, a Christian's devotion to God is unconditional. I'm yours. Romans 12, 1, you got me. As my pastor says, 
I'm assuming this is a Southern Missouri euphemism. You've got me, God. Lock, stock, and barrel. Anybody from Southern Missouri understand what I'm saying? Maybe you're from Arkansas. Does that make sense? You got it, right? Okay. I grew up in South DeKalb. We didn't say that. <laughs> All right. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is always awesome and so very good. We do pray that it would accomplish that which you desired in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.